I don't know if you ever stop to think about how little in life that we can control. It's a humbling fact to know that we didn't choose a lot of things about our lives. We didn't choose when and where we were born. We didn't choose who we were born to. You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. You didn't get to choose your siblings, or if you even had any siblings. You didn't choose the neighborhood that you grew up in. You didn't choose probably the school that you went to and the schoolmates that you had. And you will not choose the day of your death. And there's an awful lot that's out of our control. In fact, most of life is kind of out of our control. But if there's one area that terrifies us more than almost any area, and if we were honest, we would admit it, it is the area of our loved ones and children. I suppose especially our children. It was probably the most terrifying day of my entire life when I watched the little boy that I'd changed diapers on drive out of the driveway down the road. That's a terrifying moment for a parent. It reminds us that we're out of control and really always have been. Our kids are not our possessions. They're the Lord's possessions. He gives them to us. And as I say many times, it's a catch and release program. And when they're sick, it tears the heart out of a parent. When the fever is rising, there's nothing you can do about it. And you don't know what's wrong. And worse yet, the doctors don't know what's wrong. Doesn't it just about terrify you down to the core of your life? Touch anything you'd like in my life. Touch it. But don't touch the kids. Or now the grandkids. And I'd throw the dog. Don't touch my dog. <laughs> you can talk about my wife. Don't talk about my dog. <laughs> I'll join you in talking about my wife, but don't talk about the dog. <laughs> But his son was dying, and he knew it, and he couldn't do a thing about it, and his heart was breaking, and he was a rich man. He had means. He was a, a, a bit of royalty, and he had servants, and I'm sure he exhausted all medical options, and his life was ebbing away, because as any parent would tell you, I would rather die a thousand deaths than ever watch my kids die. It's a, I've never gone through it. I pray, God, I don't have to. But those of you who have, my heart goes out to you because it is a heart-wrenching experience. And you're never the same again. I know that. I've talked to enough of you to know you're never the same again. There's always a hole. And this boy, this boy was dying. And he heard that Jesus was coming into the area. Go with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We'll begin at verse 43 and read to you and study the account of this nobleman's son and his journey up to Canaan from Capernaum. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of John begins this. Now, after two days, he departed thence. Now, where did he depart from? You might be quick to say Samaria, but that's not John's point. 
John's point here is that he is departing from Judea and Jerusalem. What you have in the trip to Samaria is a parenthesis in the story. He's actually leaving at this time, although he's physically leaving Samaria. The text is speaking of Judea in Jerusalem. And he leaves thence in verse 43 and went into Galilee. Verse 44. For Jesus himself testified and taught that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now, John's reckoning of the country is going to be different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. If you will remember, we're climbing a mountain of theology here of Jesus being God, of levels that we have never seen before. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is portrayed as God. Therefore, he has no hometown other than Jerusalem, not Nazareth. Nazareth is his physical hometown. In the other three Gospels, when it talks about a prophet has no honor in his own country, all three of them are talking about Nazareth, not John. John's reference is Jerusalem, Judea, because that is God's hometown. John's first chapter says, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own were the Jews. The town was Jerusalem. The prophet speaking here has no honor in Jerusalem. Why? Well, in Nazareth, it's because he grew up, and all they knew him as, as the carpenter's son. That's true of all of us, you know. Your family will never receive the fact that you're a Christian fully and understand of anything God might be able to do in your life. Because they always look at you like the little boy or little girl. But you get away from the family and people begin to actually respect you a little bit. I say that respectfully. So the prophet here uh, that has no honor is from Jerusalem in verse 44, verse 45. And when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him. Now the reasons that they received him is told in the last part of the verse. Having seen all things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. Apparently he did a lot of miracles. They saw it. They liked it. They came back. They talked about it. Back comes Jesus into Galilee, and they receive him, for they had gone to the, the feast. So Jesus came again into Galilee. So to help you a little bit this morning, let's, uh, by the way, uh, Psalm 95 talks about our lives being, well, let's read it. About our lives, it says, you carry them away as a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. So is in the life of this boy. As young as he is, he has escaped death. So Jesus went again back into northern Galilee to give you an idea of the topography of the land. Take a look at the map behind me here. This is... Lower Galilee, Upper Galilee. This is Jerusalem down here. It's not shown on the map. Samaria is over here. He leaves the Samaritan area, kind of comes up through here. You'll notice Nazareth over here. 
bypasses that, and he ends up in Canaan right there. Now, the town that the nobleman's going to come from is Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus will eventually make that his home operation port. But for right now, he's up in Cana, and the nobleman's down in Capernaum. Now, interesting to note that Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level. So when it says that he went up from Capernaum, whatever direction you go from the Sea of Galilee, you are going up. It was a journey up from Capernaum to Canaan that was about almost 20 miles, about 17 miles. There's a little picture of the stretch coming from Capernaum down here up through. This is upwards, not always super elevated, but very rocky most places. There's a grove of olive trees. Over here where this light area is, was and is the town of Cana. I have been there. It is very rocky, very hilly, and up came the noblemen up through that, probably that path. You need to know that it was about 17 miles away, and it's important for you to know that because you can walk 17 miles in about six hours. That'll play in later in the message. So go back to chapter 4 and verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. When you look at the Bible, there is nothing added for just filler. There's a reason that Canaan's mentioned as a place where water was, it's the first miracle that he did. He took something that had no life in it, and he brought life into it. Kind of like what he did with us. Okay? Now he's going to, in this next miracle in Cana, this small town, he is going to snatch life from the very grasp of death. Look at verse 46. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now I just pause to mention that no matter what station a man is in life, a wealth or position, nothing shields any of us from the blows of life. This was a time this rich man, this nobleman, would be exposed and vulnerable. Look at verse 47. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him. Now you know from the map and you know from what I just told you that it's about 17 miles and it is all uphill. It is elevated. You ever walk on an incline for a little while? Get about half a mile and you'll start breathing heavy. This man walked 17 miles uphill. I take it he, he walked alone. And because his son was sick, those 17 miles meant nothing to him. Nothing. I wonder if he thought on that journey as he walked up that hill for 17 miles, I wonder if he hesitated perhaps for a moment and said, what will my family think? I'm going to a religious fanatic. But then he thought, I don't care, my son's dying. I wonder if he thought, I wonder what my friends will think because I'm going to see Jesus. 
Benny said, I don't care because my son's sick. I wonder if he thought, when I give back to the courts of royalty, probably inherited Antipas's court, I wonder if I'll lose my job. And then he said, I don't care. My son is sick. And all the excuses that he'd made for not going were all broke down because God had entered into his life through the means of a sick child. And those 17 miles were nothing to him. And you make up your mind to come to Jesus Christ because he has touched the nerve of your life. No distance is too far. No hardship is too great. The Bible says you will find me, God says, when you seek me with all of your heart, not your mind. Greeks called this pathos, passion, desire, drive. This was more than a sick son. This was God interrupting a nobleman's life. There are no circumstances that are perchance. Look at as the story unfolds. He gets to Galilee, or he, he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee and went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son because he was at the very point of death. Now in verse 48 is a mild rebuke, whether it's to the nobleman or to the people around him, we're not told. But this is what Jesus said. He said unto him, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Let that sink in. What experience do you need to know that Jesus Christ is real? Or that God is real? The Jews in Jerusalem rejected him. The Samaritans embraced him without seeing any signs and miracles. And the Galileans received him because they had seen the miracles. Do you see the three groups we're talking about here? Of the three groups, the Jews, the Galileans, who were Jews, but they were kind of backwoods Jews, kind of despised by the Jews of Judea. And the Samaritans, who were greatly despised as half-breeds and ignorant of God. Who was the fastest to run to Jesus Christ? Not the respectable religionist. It was the reprobate. Interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 49. The nobleman would not be turned away. He said, sir, listen to the pathos in his statement. He pushes by all the doctrine and theology of the moment. He pushes past all the excuses and all the distractions. And he said, sir, come down before my boy dies. Do you feel it? Do you see the moment? Notice what Jesus does. Jesus said unto him, go, your son lives. I don't need to come down. I don't need to walk 17 miles with you down there. I will speak the word and it will happen. That is the power of God. That is the power of Jesus Christ. He can say it and it's done. Hallelujah. We serve a powerful Savior, 
a powerful Lord. The Gospel of John raises our thoughts to a level that no other Gospel does of the person and power and majesty of Jesus Christ. He is despised of all men except those of us who have come to him. He says, go. Your son, your son's okay. Wow. Let that sink in. You, you know, we've read the story so many years. We're like, I know how the story ends. He didn't know how the story ended. Whenever you look at narratives in the Bible, put yourself in the narrative. Put yourself in the room at this moment. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Watch the nobleman's face as all bit of tension relieves out of him and he relaxes and breathes. For the very first time in months, he breathes. Maybe he went and got a good meal. Maybe he fell down and cried. What would you do? You have sons, some of you, and daughters. What would you do? He speaks the word and it is done. Your son lives. Think of the joy. Think of the happiness. Money can't buy that. No one can do that for you except him. He speaks and we live. Hallelujah. He saves us and we're saved. He redeems us and we're redeemed. Speaks the word. And all the waves crash down to a flat ocean. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. Notice, and he went his way. Now remember how long it took to get back down to town. We're going to find in a, in a few moments that the boy began to heal on the seventh hour. The seventh hour, if they figure from Jewish time, was one o'clock in the afternoon. They, they start their day at six in the morning. So when you see the sixth hour, it would be noon. If you see the seventh, it's one o'clock in the afternoon that Jesus speaks the word. How long does it take you to get back down if you're walking downhill now to Capernaum? Maybe five, five and a half hours. Especially if you want to know if the words of Jesus Christ really took hold. So if you leave at one o'clock, what time do you get home? About six, 6.30. Look at the story with me. Verse 51. And as he was going down, his servants met him coming back up and told him, your son lives. Verse 52. And he asked them of what hour he began to get better. And they said unto him, yesterday. Stop right there. It happened yesterday. So yesterday is tomorrow, right? From today. I guess. The point is the man was no hurry to get home. I think he stayed a night with somebody. He could have gone home, checked up on some old friends, ate a good meal, stopped at some houses on the way and told them what Jesus did. He's no hurry to get home because he knew his boy was okay. Faith, listen to me very carefully, does not need an experience to make it real. 
Faith brings the reality way before the experience of it comes. We live in a culture and society where experience is everything. People want to come to church service so they can experience God. There's, a, there's even a Bible study experiencing God. Faith is not about an experience. It's about a reality of the person of Jesus Christ long before the experience comes. If it ever comes, I want to have that warm, bubbly feeling inside. I want to tingle. I want to feel that God is in our presence. You don't have to feel or experience anything. If you know Christ, He is here. He is inside of you. No matter what experience you have or don't have, doesn't matter. In fact, I think God gives experiences to the weak Christians to keep them going until they get into the reality of faith where they're walking down to Capernaum just raising their hands without even knowing if the boy's okay. Let's read on. So they inquired what hour he began to mend. He said yesterday, about 1 o'clock, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour that Jesus said, Your son lives, and himself believed in his whole house. This is the second miracle that Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. I stopped long enough to say that every word in Scripture is there for you. When you study your Bible, look at every word, every phrase, there's a reason. It says this is the second miracle when he came out of Judea back into Galilee. Remember this. This is the Messiah, Son of God, being offered to the nation of Israel, which is primarily based in Judea and in Jerusalem, the city. Got it? He could not do many mighty works back down in Jerusalem. He did some, but this is a miracle when he came out back up into the north country, back up to the Galileans. Well, therein lies the story. Number one, we sleep until God wakes us up. The heart deceives us in thinking that we are alive before we come to Christ. We are, we are dead towards God before we come to Christ. We are dead asleep, and it takes him to wake us up to our need for him, period. I had a dream last night that was strange. It was almost like a dream out of revelation. I don't know how this is going to work into the sermon or the point, but I want to tell it to you anyway because it was so strange. I stepped outside somewhere, and there was a snowstorm coming. And I mean, the, I mean, fast, and the wind was blowing in. But in the midst of this incredible snowstorm that was blowing in, and it was Florida, there were two areas off in, in, the, uh, in, in the sky that were red with tremendous lightning coming out of these red spots. And at first I thought, man, that's beautiful. But then I realized how fast this thing was coming. And what it held within those red clouds, if you will, with incredible lightning were ice balls the size of bowling balls that were launched toward the earth at such a high velocity that when they hit the earth, and I saw them hit the ground, they plummeted down to the ground 15 or 20 feet. Yeah, broke open the ground and down they came. And destruction 
was all around me. I ran into a mini mark of all places, a little mini mark. You know, those little places you get the hot dogs and stuff. And I remember in the corner around the cinder block thinking, I'm going to die right here. And I prayed, Lord, if this is my time, I'm coming. And I thought in that dream, I said, well, you got my attention. You got my attention. He gets our attention. He wakes us up. Thank God that he does. He sends experiences to us and moments. And if you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about, it's coming. It's coming. He touches us. Number two, what he does is he sends life. He sends life. He sends people into your lives. He sends tragedy. He sends heartache, storms. Thank God that he does. Thank God that he does. Track back to when you came to Christ. Track back. Think about it. What was going on in your life? 